when uh, Randy told us that we were going to be teaching this, uh, this sermon series on the life of David, uh, he sent out an email and asked us if any, any one of us would like to, to teach on any one of the topics. And when I saw this, uh, this topic about this kind of this comparison between Saul and David, um, that's always kind of intrigued me, the first king of Israel, uh, the second king of Israel. And so I, I jumped on board for that, and then I, then I started studying again. I've always taken it in bits and pieces, but one thing that, uh, that I realized probably for the first time is that David's story is a long story. I mean, it's a lot of chapters in the Bible, and so I would uh, really recommend that you dig into it. Uh, there's so much that we can take um, out of the struggles and the successes uh, of the, the life of David. And so I wanted to get started. Uh, one thing I wanted to do, some of you probably know, I've, I've talked about it a lot. I had the um, really neat opportunity to, to go to the Middle East back in the spring. And actually, I spent 12 days on the ground uh, with a good friend of mine here uh, from the church in Israel. Uh, so we were from the top to the bottom uh, of Israel. And it's not that big of a country, about the size of New Jersey. That was kind of the, one of the shocking things for me. But when we were at the uh, Western Wall in Jerusalem, we spent about six days in Jerusalem. When we were at the Western Wall, we learned a little bit more about the, tra the Jewish traditions uh, of the Western Wall. We call it the Wailing Wall. What I, what I kind of found out is they don't really like it to be called that. They call it uh, the Western Wall. But the reason they go there to pray every day uh, is they feel like it's the, it's the Western Wall of what was the Herodian Temple Mount or where the second temple uh, was. And a lot of the wall is reconstructed, but the base of the wall is the original first century Herodian wall. And so there's Mount Moriah is encompassed by the Temple Mount, and Mount Moriah is where Abraham offered Isaac. And the Jews believe that God still exists in that rock. They believe that it's called the Shekinah, or the Shekinah glory of God still exists there, and that going to the Western Wall is the only real way that you can get really close to God. And so as Christians, we know better. We know that the God exists in our hearts through Jesus Christ. We don't really need to go there. But the Jews go there, and they have this tradition. They acknowledge that it's a pilgrimage that all of them should take, but uh, not everybody can, just like not everybody from here can go to Israel. And so when they do, they take written prayers from the people in their communities and their villages, and they stuff them into the crevices of the wall. And so they're kind of representing their communities. And so that's why I want to share a couple of photos with you and a couple of stories. Because I know not everybody's going to be able to go there. Uh, but I'd like to share with you uh, some of the things that we've learned. The first uh, picture I have is actually a map. I want to talk to you about a place called En Gedi today. And that's relative to the, to the discussion that we're going to have. If you see En Gedi, if you recognize uh, Israel, if you know anything about geography, that's the Dead Sea. And Gedi is on the southern, southwestern shores of the Dead Sea. And so just keep that in mind. That's the place that I want to talk to you about. Let's go to the next picture. This is a picture of what would be considered the Judean wilderness. I took this picture from atop uh, the Herodian fortress called Masada, which that's a whole other story. I could, we could talk about that for hours. Look that up, Google Masada. Uh, but that's, you know, a thousand feet or so above what's considered the Dead Sea level. If you see the blue in the background on the right, that's the Dead Sea. But this is the foothills of the Judean mountain range. We know the story of Jesus when Jesus was thrust into the wilderness and tempted for 40 days. That's the backdrop. That's part of the Judean wilderness that Jesus 
would have spent 40 days in without water, without food. We were there in the spring, and so it was cool. It was 90 degrees. Zero percent humidity, just absolutely, totally dry. Your friend was a bottle of water. In the summer, this place gets to be maybe 120, 125 degrees. So this is a barren, dry wasteland with very little life forms, okay? This is the Judean wilderness. Now let me show you the next picture. This is in Getty. Remember on the southwestern shores, not about a mile from where I took that picture. And you can see that there's lush greenery, there's water. Now this is called an oasis. It's classified as an oasis. And uh, you get about maybe 100 yards from the water source, it's barren dry. Uh, this is fed from a spring. It's, it's formed by what's called a wadi, W-A-D-I. Uh, where I come from, we call it a holler. So it's just a carve out in the mountains, again at the foothills of the Judean mountainside. The rainwater, is very little rain, if any, in that valley. But in the highlands, in the upper elevations of the Judean mountainside, there is quite a bit of rain. And so the rain makes its way through rocks and crevices and forms a spring that pops out at the En Gedi. And all this life kind of forms around it. And so that's En Gedi. Uh, let's go to the next slide. I wanted to show you this little fella. Uh, this was in En Gedi. I took this picture. They told us we might not see him, but we did. We were lucky enough to see him. He's called an ibex. And he's a goat, obviously. But the reason I wanted to show you this picture is that's where En Gedi gets its name. En Gedi, translated into English, are rocks of the kid or rocks of the young goat. And so it's named by its inhabitants. So these things were roaming around back in David's time at En Gedi. Now let me show you another picture of another little fellow that we met. He's called a hyrax. And he kind of looks like a groundhog, right? He doesn't get much bigger than that. Uh, again, we weren't really guaranteed we were going to see a lot of them, but there were tons of them. And they, they live around this spring. They feed on the flora and the fauna. And the reason I wanted to show you this is this guy's biblical too. He's mentioned in the book of Proverbs. It says that the hyrax is not a very powerful animal, yet he makes his home within the cracks and crevices of the rock. And so look that up if you want to. Again, that has very little relativity to the story, but I just wanted to share it with you. But what, this, what, but what really this really underscored to me is this is a biblical land and that these animals are mentioned uh, by one by the name of the area and specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, so we'll go on. We're going to be talking about this comparison between King Saul and King David. Again, the first king of Israel and David being the second king. Uh, Randy kind of laid out the story of Samuel, the prophet, and so we know that Samuel was a judge and that he was kind of the ruler of the Jewish people at that time. Uh, but the Jews weren't listening to Samuel at this point. And he was kind of taking that as a slight on his leadership. And so he was going to God with this. And the Jewish people were demanding a king. And so uh, God says this to Samuel. We're going to be looking in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8 if you want to follow along on verse 9. God says, listen to them, Samuel, but solemnly warn them about what, a, what the rights of a king will be that would rule over him. What he was saying was, you can listen to them, give them what they want, but they need to make really sure what they're asking for. You need to make them make it abundantly clear what they're asking for when they're demanding uh, for uh, a king. So Samuel 
uh, told all of the Lord's words to the people. This is in chapter 8, verse 10 through 22. going to be a lot of scripture reading today, so follow along with me. Uh, Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and he will put them in his use in his chariots. He'll oppress them into the military. He'll put them to use on his horses or maybe even running in front of the chariots. Uh, he can appoint them as commanders of a few or commanders of thousands. He can make them plow his ground and reap his harvest. Or he can make them uh, make weapons of war to equip the chariots. He can take your daughters and he can press them into service as perfumers or as cooks or as bakers. He can take your best fields, your vineyards, your olive orchard, orchards, and he can give them to, your, to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your vineyards, and he can give those to his officials. He can even take your male servants, your female servants. He can take your best young men and your donkeys, and he can use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself can become servants of the king. And when that day comes, you'll cry out, because the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. And it says that the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king who will rule over us. He'll go out and he'll fight our battles. And he'll be our judge. And so Samuel listened to all the people's words and he repeated them to the Lord. And God said, listen to them, Samuel appoint a king for them and so that's what Samuel set out to do and so uh, it goes on to say this in chapter 9 it says there was an influential man of the tribe of Benjamin named Kish he had a son named Saul an impressive young man there was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he he stood a head taller than anyone else and so when I read this, what I take from this is, is that he looked good in skinny jeans. I mean, I mean he fit the profile. You know, I, hate, I want to sound kind of judgmental, but there's a lot of, of churches, large and small, and, and sometimes we appoint maybe someone in their, their early 20s that looked the part. And I've seen so many of those churches stumble and fall because they just filled the uniform, they just because they looked good. Uh, and so that's really not the way we should pick our leaders. But that was Saul. And so Saul, well, an important key point here to remember, Saul was appointed. Saul was appointed king. Let's contrast that with David. David was the least of his brothers, the least of all of his brothers. It says he was the picture of health, but by his descriptions, I think he was kind of the runt of the litter, so to speak. And so David didn't stand out among all of his brothers, let alone the Israelites. Yet David was a man after God's own heart. And here's the, here's the key importance. David, or Saul, was appointed, but we know that David was anointed, the king. So a big difference there. And so David, we know the story. We fast forward through that. David took on Goliath. And we know the story. We know the ending, right? There's no spoiler alert there. I want to show another picture, of you, picture for you up here, and this is the, battle, the, the Valley of Elah. This is uh, taken, we took this from a, from a top, a place called Azekah, or it's called Tel Azekah, and that just means it's an archaeological dig. And so this is where it's believed the Philistines were encamped, and the Valley of Elah is where David took on Goliath. 
And so from Azekah, how, how do we know that's where the Philistines were encamped? Well, the guide, as we were walking up the path to get up to the top of this, this hill, they call it a mountain, I'd call it a hill from where I'm from, but we picked up, he had us pick up a handful of gravel. Uh, my things are all boxed up in a barn right now, or I would have brought some things to show you. But he had us kind of lick a couple of the rocks, spit on them a little bit, don't mean to be gross. And it turns out that about one in every five rock was a pottery shard. And how they know this is a Philistine encampment is when they were digging this excavation, they found inscriptions on pottery shards that identified as Philistine pottery. And so we know for sure. The Bible says that the Philistines were on one hill and the Israelites were on another. And so we were standing where the Philistines were standing. If you look at that picture, you see a little hill that kind of juts into the valley next to the road. That's most likely where the Israelites were encamped. And there's a small stream that runs through the valley. And so David would have, been, would have found some smooth stones there to put in his pouch. And so it's kind of neat. But that's where it happened. And so now you know. And so David, we know after he defeated uh, uh, the Philistine, he was made ruler in Saul's armies. It says this in Samuel 18. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased all of the people, and Saul's servant as well. And so what I take from this is Saul had every reason to be happy with David. David was expanding his kingdom. David was winning battles for him. But let's go on with the story. It says, as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul. And they were singing, and they were dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. And as they celebrated, they sang this song. Saul has killed thousands but David has killed tens of thousands. This infuriated Saul. They credited tens of thousands to David, he said, but they only credited thousands to me. What more can he have but the kingdom? See, Saul's kingdom was advancing because of David's success. He was winning these battles. He was a very successful leader in the military. But this made me think about something. When I used to work, used to work in the field of architecture, and when we had a project, we would go out and we would put up a project sign. And if you really wanted to make the president of our company uh, mad, you would, you would allow the contractor's name to be bigger than ours. And he drove around and he looked at these signs. And so if that ever happened, you were going to pay a, a significant price. You were going to be in big trouble because his job was to promote our company. And likewise, Saul couldn't stand the fact that David was getting bigger billing than he was. It awoke kind of a jealousy and an anger in him that, that Saul's never going to be able to get over. I mean, it just takes over his life. In Samuel 18, we see an example of this. It says, The next day an evil spirit sent from God took control over Saul, and he began to rave inside his palace. David was playing the harp as usual, but Saul was holding a spear. And he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. And it says David avoided him twice. First of all, if one spear goes by my head, I'm getting out of dodge. You know, I, I never have quite understood that story, but, but David got away from it twice. Saul hated David. He had an automatic hatred for him over this jealousy that he was suffering. 
And, you know, but before we give Saul such a hard time, can we admit that we're kind of that way too? And I mean, maybe we're not going to throw a spear at somebody, but, but what about when you're in college and someone gets recognized, or you're in high school or whatever, someone gets recognized, and aren't you just a little bit jealous? And don't you have just a little bit less love for that person? Or maybe it's the person that got the promotion that you didn't get at work. Don't we find ourselves maybe, even though we don't have a real good reason, maybe not liking that person all that much? I mean, it's built in us. I, I admit that. And so I don't want to give Saul too much of a hard time, but we'll, we'll go on and, and we'll, uh, we'll judge Saul a little later on. Uh, but, you know, as we give, go further on our Christian walk, this is so important. As we grow on our walk, it's got to be a little less about us and a little more about other people. I mean, if we're maturing Christians, we need to have the love of people in our hearts. If we don't love people, it's pretty hard to love God. As a matter of fact, God doesn't separate those two. When we love Him, we've got to love His people. It's not about us anymore as we advance on our walk towards Christ. We're going to see that Saul wasn't finished here. Saul tells David, this is in chapter 18, verse 17, Saul told David, here is my oldest daughter Merib. I give her to you as a wife, if you'll be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But what Saul was really thinking is, my hand doesn't have to be against David. Let the Philistines be against him. See, what, David, what Saul was trying to do, he was trying to off David by putting him out on the front line. Does that kind of sound a little familiar? If you know the story of David? You know, David not only tries to pull this off, but he succeeds, right? And so sometimes I think it's true that sometimes we emulate the people that we have the least respect for. I don't know why that is, but I've caught myself in my life doing the same thing. And so, if anything, uh, David's success increased. This, this little plan that Saul hatched didn't work, and David continued to win battles and continued to grow in popularity, and it was driving Saul nuts. So let's fast forward to the story a little bit. Saul's jealousy and his paranoia is going to grow stronger as David's success uh, continues. It seems like everything David's touching turns to gold, and it's driving Saul uh, bats. So Saul's desire to kill David grows too, and so it's not a secret anymore either. David pretty much knows. I think when two spears gets thrown at you, you kind of got an idea. And so David tries to flee Saul, and Saul steps of his pursuit, and David is gathering his own army. He's gathering his own confederates uh, to his cause, and it's not just people that appeared, it's splitting. The nation is dividing because of this anger, this self-destructive. You think about that. Saul is thinking he's He's winning something for himself, but actually he's being, his behavior is self-destructive. It's tearing a whole nation apart. But David's got a chance to end this. He can do away with Saul once and for all. So we're going to fast forward to chapter 24, the first four verses. And it says this, When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. Remember, you know where that is now, right? So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's choice men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Remember the name of En Gedi? The rocks of the kid or the rocks of the young goat? When Saul came to the sheep's pen along the road, there was a cave there, and he went in to relieve himself. I'm sorry for the graphics. I didn't write this, uh, but 
You know, he was a human. So David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. So they said to him, look, the day that the Lord has told you about has come. Your enemy is here and you can do anything you want with him, whatever you desire. Then David got up and he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe without him noticing that. So what I see here is David spared Saul. David could have got rid of this headache, this guy that's pursuing him right there. But he spared him. And he's going to do it again. He spares Saul more than once. But you know, Saul knows this. David made it known that he'd cut off the corner of his robe. But it never deterred Saul one bit. It never stopped him uh, from his pursuit. And so how did, his, how did, did, his, did Saul's self-destructive behavior, how did it come to a climax? Let's, let's go to 1 Samuel 31. It says, The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them. Many were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers caught up with him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run through me with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run through and torture me. But the armor-bearer wouldn't do it because he was afraid. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. So where did Saul meet his fate? Another geography lesson here for you. I've got this another picture for you if you want to put that up. This is Mount Gilboa in the background. This was taken from the Nazareth precipice. Uh, it's Nazareth is on a hilltop, but it's kind of in a bowl, and so up on the ledge. Uh, this young girl that's sitting there taking pictures about 10 feet in front of her is a cliff that drops about 800 feet. And uh, so the story where the Jesus and the, and was rejected in his own hometown when they were going to push him off a cliff, this is probably where uh, they, they drove him and tried to push him off the cliff. And so, But overlooking uh, the valley, this valley is called the Jezreel Valley. And uh, this is kind of important to me. This makes total sense and brings the Bible to life because if any armies were pursuing another army, they would have come through the Jezreel Valley. This is part of what's called the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. It's the Roman road. And to get down to the Mediterranean Sea or even through the Judean mountains, you would have had to cross the Jezreel Valley. And so it makes sense to me that the Philistines were pursuing the Israelites. also makes sense to me that the Israelites fled to the high ground for safety at Mount Gilboa. And that's where Saul uh, met his fate. His fate was sealed because of his anger and because of his disobedience to God. Uh, God had left Saul because of his disobedience. And so it's, it's Saul, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like what we can do ourselves. We, we can have someone who give us, gives us good advice and gives us good direction, right? Because then they give us their plan. But then, through our own self-destructiveness, we decide our plan's better. And that's why Saul, I believe, met his fate. That's why God had left him. So I want to take a minute and compare the sins of Saul and David. This is something that's always kind of intrigued me. What are Saul's sins? If you listed them out, Saul's sins are uh, jealousy and greed and anger. And uh, even disobedience, uh, sometimes people would say partial disobedience, specifically with the Amalekites, because he was supposed to destroy them and overtake them and destroy all the animals, destroy everything that he saw, but he didn't. He kept a lot of things for himself. 
And then when he was confronted by Samuel about it, he justified his actions. And so let's, let's compare that to David's sins. Lust, adultery, and murder. And you know, when you kind of set those side by side, David's sins, to me, seem a little worse. You know, David was guilty of some pretty heinous things, but one thing you need to understand is God really doesn't grade on the curve. Sin is sin. An affront to God is an affront to God. And so let's contrast uh, the difference between David and Saul based on what we know about their sins. Uh, we'll go back a little bit. Uh, we'll be in Samuel 28. Uh, we're going to look at Saul. He says, Saul is, is uh, this to set the backdrop, he's consulted a psychic because of his failures, because of his problems, because the Philistines are about to overtake him. So he's consulting a psychic. And a psychic, through whatever means, brings up Samuel, because Samuel's died already at this point. But uh, Samuel says, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul said, I'm in serious trouble. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or my dreams. So I'll call on you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel replied, Since the Lord's turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord's done exactly what I said he would do. He's torn the kingship out of your hand, and he's given it to your, your neighbor David. You didn't obey the Lord, and you didn't carry out his burning anger against Amalek, and therefore the Lord has done this to you today. If you read this story about Saul, time and time again, he's given the opportunity to confess, to turn from his sin, to repent from it. He's sinning right now because the God had told him, rid the land of all the medians, and he's consulting one of them. And so he's just totally disobedient. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not even acknowledging his own sin. Some people think that in this, this, this exchange with Samuel, that maybe it was, it was Saul's conscience that was working on him. Some believe that this appearance might have been a trick that the medium uh, kind of brought up because we know that Samuel was dead by then. But whatever you think about Samuel's visit to Saul, Saul had another chance to confess his sin. He was confronted and had a chance to do it. Samuel told him, God did exactly what I told you he was going to do, but Saul never acknowledged it. Never acknowledged it to God. Didn't ask for forgiveness. See, Saul looked the part. Saul looked like a king. Saul was imposing, but he wasn't worthy of a king. And he died without God's favor. And his destruction cannot be blamed on anything else but himself. Totally self-destructive behavior. Now let's con contrast that with David. We're going to fast forward even farther to 2 Samuel because we know David gets caught up in sin. We know about the story of Bathsheba. We know about the murder that resulted from it. We know all of that. So David, the difference is David confessed his sins. Let's read this in 2 Samuel. It says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There are two men. This is, he's telling him a parable. He said, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man couldn't bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare it for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for his guest. See, the, the custom was when a guest came, uh, it was required of you uh, to offer hospitality. And so that's what this story is all about. You have to understand the Jewish tradition to understand the story. But it says that David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Because he's done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for one lamb. Nathan replied to David, David, you're the man. You're who I'm talking about. And here's David's response. Doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of hesitation. In verse 13 he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He confessed his sin. And he began this process of repentance. Just means he's turning away from his sin. He's turning away from the things that he's allowed to creep in and take over in his life. Now David would pay a steep price for his sins for the rest of his life. He, was dealt, he, he had to deal with afflictions. He had to deal with loss. Uh, but David had joy in all of his circumstances, and he honored God from that day forward. In Psalm 51, we read his confession. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you and against you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right to pass sentence on me. You are blameless when you judge me. Indeed, I was guilty even when I was born. Shouldn't that be our song? Why don't we just come clean with God? We're all guilty of sin. We can put on the skinny jeans. We can look good on the outside, and we can be rotten to the core. And we're all going to do that, folks. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to be that way on this side of eternity, but there's one difference, the only thing that counts, and that's confessing that Jesus is our Lord and being open and detailed and upfront about the sins that we're engaged in. Saul fit the profile. He was rugged, tall, and imposing. But Saul was self-promoting from the very start. David, again, the least of his brothers, small in stature. His parents didn't even take him seriously. And even though David had his own failures, in the end, he denied himself to God. See, Saul was self-promoting. David, in the end, was self-denying. That's the big difference between the two. What's the application of what we're talking about? You know, when I think about this, I know I can be the king. I'm really good at being the king of my own little world. I mean, I'm skilled at it. I mean, I, there's just no doubt about it. I do a great job of looking out for me. And too many times I find myself, I'm just kind of promoting my own personal agenda and about everything that I do. But David's story reminds me about what really, truly matters and that's that we accept Jesus as our, as our Savior we're going to mess things up we're gonna, our self-destruction is going to cost us a lot of problems 
But the bottom line is when we surrender to Jesus, when we give our hearts to him, now we're still going to have problems in the world, but we're going to be able, just like David, to live through joy through all of our circumstances. You know, maybe you're here today and... Um, I don't know, maybe this story's kind of struck some kind of chord with you. Maybe you've been um, a Christian for decades. And maybe you've really never thought about, uh, about Saul's self-destructive behavior. Maybe you can relate to him more than you can to David. I don't know. Today's a good day to kind of deal with that. And so I'm going to be up here. How, how this is going to work, we're going to have communion uh, right after this. And I always like to stand up here. If any of y'all need prayer, if you need any kind of... Maybe, maybe to, to help me work you through some questions in your life if you're going through something that, that you're struggling with. I want to be accessible to you up here. But I also want to talk to others out there that haven't maybe accepted Christ as their Savior. The Bible says for us to be saved, it's really simple. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus died for us, and that simply by accepting Him as our Savior, we can have an eternal life with him maybe you're out there maybe that's you maybe you haven't accepted him I'm going to be up here uh, in that same period I would love to pray that prayer with you and I would really encourage you don't wait so I'll be up here with you I'll be up here and I'll be waiting for you uh, you might think oh that'll be embarrassing well I'll be embarrassed for you I'm standing up here so come on up don't let it uh, don't let it deter you would you all pray with me as we go into this time, this really important time in our service, uh, where we sit around the, the table and we, uh, we take of the Lord's Supper. Pray, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, God, thank you. You know, when I read these stories, when I read this story of David, gosh, I, I know it's true. You can't make this stuff up. And God, I thank you for these examples that we can have. I thank you for our many blessings. And I, and I pray a special blessing on everybody that takes this juice and takes this bread, these simple elements that become an important and meaningful ordinance when we set with the right heart and take it, um, understanding that you would sacrifice for us. This is also a wonderful time for each and every one of us to examine our own lives in the light of yours. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name.